Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round. We recorded two endings to this episode, one where I stay behind and one where I go on to become a regular interviewer for the series. a secret location somewhere on the south bank of London. Yes. And uh, I'm with a gentleman that has contributed not only scripts, but icons to Doctor Who. So it's a great pleasure for me to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. I'm Bob Baker. Well, Bob, your, your name has, uh, has graced many uh, Doctor Who scripts, which I know you've talked about a lot in the past, and often in conjunction, usually in conjunction with your good friend Dave Martin. Yes. So let's take... Bob Baker and Dave Martin out of the equation and just go back to what started Bob Baker as an individual as on the path of writing. Was that always going to happen? Um, no, not at all. I mean, I left school at 15 with no O-levels or anything and uh, I was a stonemason for f- six years. I was apprentice for five and I went on another year after that. I was a monumental mason and I was le- learned to letter cut uh, inscriptions. So I was always a writer. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's just... He was hammer and chisel. For <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was always interested in, um, in you know, making films. And, you know, uh, all my mates, uh, we formed a band together, which included John Fortune, who lived just down the road from me. Uh, we, we were just interested in music. We were interested in films, all sorts of things. And I got the bug. I really got into being, you know, going to movies and, you know, uh, assessing them against one, you know, being a critic and that sort of stuff. And then we, when we get together, we discuss things and we said, well, why don't we make a film? And uh, I said, yeah, 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 great. So uh, so about five or six of us together. And one was a technical guy. Um, I felt that I, I was in the sort of writing area. as a guy called Bill Stair, who was a brilliant man. And he and I got together and we were at the script. And uh, so we made it. It was all silent because... Uh, all we could do was um, borrow a 16mm Browning camera, which is a little box, uh, which I think shot about uh, 25 feet at the time, or something, or 50 feet at the time, very short. Anyway, we had to keep loading. A, a big cloth would come out, and uh, Tony, our cameraman, would change the film. Um, now, the film we used was, was uh, free... A uh, gun camera film from the RAF. <laughs> it was very, very old. But I mean, and again, you see, innovative. We we had to develop it ourselves. And uh, our cameraman, who was brilliant, he did it in his bath at home. He had all these reams of <laughs> of sixteen millimeter film going through the bath, coming out, being washed, and so on. Uh, it came out a bit grainy here and there. But and, uh, there, there, we made a film. We'd done it, and uh, you know it was. I think it's a wonderful film, and uh, you know I love watching it any time. I'm not ashamed of anything in it at all. And so I then I was on the road. So then I finished my apprenticeship, and I was by the time I was married, and uh, then I decided to go to art school. You know, a bit late in life, as it were. I was I was all of twenty one, or twenty two, <laughs> and um, then uh, I'd studied a, a painting because I wanted to be a painter, and then I decided I didn't want to be a painter, because all you ended up doing, if you if you did your diploma there, was end up as a teacher, and I didn't want to be a teacher. So um, I did a subsidiary course of filmmaking, of um, animation, and uh, we had a sort of very simple rostrum, and I made a few things on the rostrum, and uh, a couple of little films as well with the students, and I was on the path then, 
And then one day, um, our teacher at the college said a friend, friend of his, uh, a movie director, was coming to Bristol to do a film, and would I help out, since I was a Bristolian, to show him some locations? And this was Clive Donner, ah. who uh, eventually went on to make some fantastic things, but this was his first feature film called Some People, and it was a kind of um, thing about... Uh, the, it was really about the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme, uh, and it was sort of sponsored for that and everything. Um, Anyway, somehow I got to read the script and, and uh, Clive said, well, what did you think of it? And I'm afraid it was, I thought it was a terrible script. It was going a cardboard figure suddenly going from doing turn-ups on motorbikes to doing kind of woodwork in, in classes to get the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Anyway, so I told him all this and I thought, well, he had time me to clear off. <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> he, he got the writer to, you know, include quite a few things that I'd said, which was very nice. Again, I'm on track. You know, we're going to go, I'm going to be in the films somewhere. Uh, that's the way I was moving. And um, then after I finished college, I, I made films in my basement. Uh, I built myself a rostrum. Um, or I, I got a friend of mine who was a, a toy maker to build one. It's totally the wrong technology, but, but it worked. It was sort of all timber and, and bicycle chains and all sorts of things. But uh, again, uh, we got together again, our, our, our little film unit that we'd, we'd made, and uh, we made a film called Some uh, uh, Case History of a Real Life Commercial, which was a kind of innovative thing. Uh, we didn't know about, I mean, it's a long time before Python, but it was all done with photographs and, you know, bits of paper and stuff, sticky stuff and things. And um, uh, it got shown to John Borman at the BBC. And John Borman said, I'm just doing a new programme. I'd like you to do one of these for each programme, you know, about three minutes long, four minutes long. I thought, right, here we go. We're on our way. And then suddenly, he's gone. <laughs> he's in America doing Point Blank, which was co-written with him and our friend Bill Stair, mm. who was in our group, and he went off with it. So I felt a bit sort of lonely after that. And uh, I, I spent many years, about three years, in fact, just fiddling around, doing a bit here here and there. I did all sorts of things like uh, taxi driving. And um, I, then I settled on um, building, re, redoing some old houses and sort of buying them and selling them. But unfortunately, it was the wrong time. It was 19 in the 60s and Harold Wilson Labour government was in. Not that I didn't mind that, but it's just that nobody could get a mortgage on a house over 50 years old. And these were these were old, really old Georgian properties. Anyway, so eventually it sort of sorted itself out by the time it got through the fourth house. But, but uh, one of the houses um, was a shop before and uh, we opened it as a shop. And um, the last person to come in every night when I did the sort of dog shift at nine o'clock till ten was um, a chap called Dave Martin. And we used to talk about films and everything. And I told him about my rostrum and that I was making a terrible film at the moment for some guy who was, you know, paying me to do it. Um, it was called uh, Peter Grimes uh, from the poem, poem by George Crabbe. Mm. And uh, he said, well, why don't we write it? And I thought, well, yeah, I don't mind. Because he was, uh, I mean, a big time... Uh, advertising copywriter at the time. He was really, you know, in the big league. Won a couple of prizes, I think. And I thought, well, you know, yeah, that'd be great, fantastic. I'd love to do that. He said, well, I'll give up my job and go on a dole and we'll do it. I said, fine. Wow. So then when we finished it, um, I, you know, thinking of Clive Donner, I thought, well, I'll send it to Clive. And he said, well, 
yeah, I like it, but I can't do it. I'm doing something else. You ought to give it to so-and-so, who was the producer on some people, who actually lived in Alborough, where it was, takes place. And so it, things began to look a bit better, and then we got in touch with a company called Eyeline, who said, yes, we like it, we like to do it. And uh, there was a, a director interested, so that you know the little house of cards that you build to make a movie was beginning to make, uh, beginning to go. And uh, suddenly the director died. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, the whole thing fell down. But we thought, well, the first thing we ever did, nearly damn nearly got made as a film. So uh, we thought, just keep going. So we then rented an office. Uh, and I was a musician at the time as well. And my uh, musical agent had a couple of back rooms to spare in his offices. And so we rented them. And uh, we just went on writing, sort of filled the rooms with, with paper, really. And then we found out that HTV our local station, um, was TWW at the time, was changing to HTV, and that the, the new head of programmes there was looking for uh, plays by local authors. And so we got into that very quickly and sent in a couple of plays, and he chose one of ours. So then that was the first thing I saw of things that I'd written or we'd written, and then you see a name on TV and you think, well, that's it. That, that's what I'm doing now. I don't do anything else. Mm. That's it. Yeah, uh, but then again, so we spent a, uh, about a year, I think, doing kind of, uh, you know, adding to the store of paper in, in our offices and doing extra work on films and all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, just to earn the odd penny and keep within the business, you know, keep, you learn things all the time, you know. Uh, anyway, so that was that uh, year. But uh, at the beginning of that year, we'd, we'd written a thing called. Um, a Man's Life, which is about a, an army character. And um, we'd sent it off to BBC London because we didn't know who to send it to. And after that year, suddenly um, the whole thing came back round to us and uh, a chat rang us up and said, we just read your story. We love it. We think it's great. You know, we had a really good laugh on it. And um, so we, we could like to talk to you about it, you know. So, so he said, come on up to London and we'll, you know, we'll talk about it. And uh, they took us immediately to the BBC bar and proceeded to get us absolutely out of our heads on gin and tonic. And uh, they were they kept saying, you know, we like this army story, but there's tanks in it. We can't afford tanks in the blah, blah, blah. And so we said, uh, oh, you know, it's all right, armoured cars, anything you like. I mean, it's the story that's important. Blah, blah, blah. And they said, do you know what we do? I said, no, no, no. Um, they said, we do Doctor Who. I said, great, now, about these tanks. And then suddenly <laughs> they said, uh, do you want to do a Doctor Who? I said, yeah, sure, now, about these tanks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, suddenly we were doing a Doctor Who, and um, uh, so, but it, you know, it wasn't as simple as that. <laughs> uh, they said send in some storylines, some one-page storylines. Uh, this was with um, Terence Dix, who mm. was the script editor at the time, and um, so we went on sending in what single line, single pages for a year before we finally got one, which turned we went from a seven-parter to a six-parter to a four-parter. And the four-parter was finally called uh, The Claws of Axos. So that was our first uh, uh, outing with Doctor Who. And quite late in the day, because it was called The Vampire from Space. Vampire from Space. Time, I think it was it? called something else before that as well. But, um, you know, it was... I mean, I think it was quite successful. And, you know, oh, it's uh, great. Um, but it op- that opens... What you've just said there opens up a, a myriad of, of different... Uh, pos- because... That's very interesting. You said a non-sci... It was back Keith Floyd as well, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. A, a non-sci-fi script, but there's something that is seen by a producer of a sci-fi show that says, oh, well, that will work. Whereas yes. 
my experience of writing today is pigeonholing goes on much absolutely. more today than these would you days, say? Absolutely. It's terrible these days. It's like, it's like going over the top of the sob trying to get a script <laughs> in. It really is. I mean, even for me nowadays, I mean, I, I try and try and try still, you know, to get them. But I mean, uh, at the BBC, they've got this kind of uh, uh, obstacle course to go through online. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's a kind of rejection comes naturally somehow. Um, anyway, but you have to put up with that, I suppose. I mean, things change. Um, we were lucky. It was uh, sheer luck that it landed on their desk and they, they actually read it, you know. And did you have much enthusiasm uh, or experience of, of sci-fi itself prior to, to being... Well, I was a great sci-fi fan, lover. Not so much Dave, but, I mean, he liked it if it was good, you know. Um, and uh, he wasn't overly keen on doing Doctor Who at first. Um, he just felt, you know, when we did that year of sending in pages, he kept he got more and more frustrated. But instead of saying no, I'm not going to do it, he said, right, well, of course we can do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, we we just kept at it until we finally got one away. But I mean, what we realised was we were being trimmed into shape to do the kind of the, the recipe that is Doctor Who. I mean, we were a bit wild, a bit. Mm. Um, off the cuff and a bit uh, bit dangerous, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and of course, you're having to create strange worlds from outer space in a yeah, baby, yeah. tiny BBC studio with... Very low budget. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we thought it was whacking budget. You know, it was like, so they kept saying, no, we're not MGM, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the dynamic between you? I wrote, so I, I've written quite a lot, but recently the thing I wrote was with my other half, just a short five-minute thing. And um, I hated it, and I love her very much. But being with somebody else, I prefer to sort of get my head down, hammer it out, and then if somebody else looks at it, they look at it when I'm not there and send me notes, and then I... To, to actually do it in the same room as somebody, that, that takes quite a special dynamic, I would say. Yeah, well, it, once it works, then, you know, it's like... Uh, well, as Dave said, it's a bit like marriage without sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are just totally in tune with each other. I mean, it's as if you're one person almost. And also, the the kind of odd thing is that your first draft comes out more like a second draft because there are two minds being at, being at it. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and it also, we were very quick because, I mean, we used to, you know, reply, come back with a script very quickly. Um, especially, of course, at HTV where we used to do them, you know, a lot, quite heavily involved there with two or three a year or something, you know, and but you, they always knew we'd deliver. And I, I watched Claws of Access again quite recently. It's interesting with that and with the mutants. There's a, two of the things that leapt out. There's the obvious thing with the mutants is that it's an allegory of British colonialism. Yeah. It's got that very brilliantly clever sci-fi idea of the seasons yeah. and, and it being mankind interrupting that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and with Axos, it's about the exploitation of greed and you've got the politician who yeah. there goes, oh, yeah, give us this, but we have to have the distribution rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is the, there's, there's quite a political edge to your writing. Well, we all like to bring something in that, that was, you know, real, if you like, um, something understandable and, uh, you know, got a bit of an edge to it. I mean, uh, I think, yes, Clause of Axos, you know, was about greed. It, you know, it was kind of a uh, um, bit like Wall Street, you know, only in an early stage. Um, it, uh, you know... It seemed, it seemed worth doing. And before we go on to Doc 2, I can't uh, let it uh, fall that you said you were playing in a band. So what instrument did you play? What's I the... played tenor sax. Wow, OK. We had uh, several bands. I mean, John Fortune was on trombone. And um, we had, uh, what was it, uh, trombone, trumpet, two saxes, um, 
or sax and clarinet sometimes, uh, piano, bass, drums and guitar. And uh, we played you know, gigs all around the place. I mean, that was jazz. That was yeah. Pure. I mean, that was what we call mainstream jazz. But I moved on to rock and roll later on. <laughs> <laughs> and you still musical? Do you still... No, I, well, I'd love to be, but unfortunately my fingers won't let me do it anymore. Oh, so not in practice. But I, I, all I do is listen. Now. Yeah. Do you have favourites that you listen to? Yes, yes, many, many, many. I've got, I've got a little shed that I retire to to do my drawing and painting when I want to, and I've got a, an old, not a wind-up, but a, an old uh, thing that plays LPs, you know, and I've got a nice stack of LPs of, of jazz. and uh, I, like, I like jazz singers a lot, um, especially female jazz singers, uh, and uh, I find it very relaxing. And... Um... Well, you didn't seem to have much chance to relax on your Doc Shoes because you seem to become... You're a firm favourite of Terence Dix, it seems. He very much, oh, once yeah. you were a part of that team, yeah. you were you were entrusted with with stories. And a, and The Three Doctors is, mm. you know, as a sort of bigger story as had been yeah, made at that point. It was quite an accolade. It didn't really sort of dawn on us, really. And then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, they just gave us that one. Mm. That's nice of him. You know, oh, well, as he said, you know, I, I think I saw him a convention in America and he said I never had to change a line of yours unless it was absolutely necessary which is I thought you know as a script editor that's a very very nice thing to say mm. because I mean having been a script editor I was you know a slaughterer compared with him you know uh, I would have been with it with uh, if you if you have to work on editing you've got to edit and quite often if you if you don't personally like it then you you change it or something mm. but honestly he didn't change anything Oh, Doctor Who's history is is littered with scripts that have gone out under a writer's name, uh, and yet it bears absolutely, you know, no resemblance, no resemblance to what he yeah, yeah. he submitted. Um, and the, I mean, we we know about the three Doctors and Hartnell being and all that sort of thing. That, but the idea from that I always come away with from that that I think such a powerful idea, and I remember it when I saw it when it was repeated when I was younger, is the idea of a guy who doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. But sure, purely by the force of his own personality. Yeah. Where did that come? I love that idea. It's a brilliant and tragic, tragic it idea. Is. So where yeah, did that come yes, from? Yes, I know where it came from. It came from Aldous Huxley. Um, there's a there's a slim volume he wrote called "Time Must Have a Stop," and um, in it somebody dies, and uh, he's although he's dead, he's still an awareness of an awareness. That was how the idea came about, and so he was. You know, that's what the, the doctor says. Is that, He's not. He's an awareness of an awareness. You know. He's, he's, you know. It's a lovely thing to to work in your mind that that awareness of awareness. And it 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 is sort of subtle in a way. So thank you, Huxley. <laughs> but I mean, put it in the context of Omega, it works very well. I mean, because he was such a, a brutish pig, <laughs> and, yes. a, and a megalomaniac in the best order. You know, of megalomaniacs. Yes. And were you always happy with? I mean, with with, with Bearing in mind the limitations of the BBC, when you watch something like The Mutants and, and The Three Doctors and The Claws of Axos at the time, you know, I, I guess you were understanding what worked and what didn't. And yeah. Was that always informing the next one that you did? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Axos, I'm we're quite, very happy with the monsters in that. Mutants were superb. I've never seen anything as good as that since, to be honest. Um, not in that, that period, anyway. Mm. Um, of course, the more modern ones, you could do a lot more with CGI. But uh, but I think they did very well. Uh, Three Doctors, I hated the gel guards because <laughs> they just like silly blobbies going around, Mr Blobbies. Yeah. But, um, you know, again, it's budget, you know, and that sort of thing. <coughs> but, um, you know, 
all the stories we did they all had some kind of um, strong uh, narrative thread thread to them, which uh, you know is good. Um, and then the monsters, I mean, Sontaranus wasn't ours anyway. Um, but then, uh, the hand of uh, fear, hand of fear yeah. which uh, you know the carbon based life form, uh, you know that, that was interesting to work with, just to think about, you know, um, and uh, the the strangest one I suppose was was the kind of Greek myth one. Uh, the um, underworld, underworld, yeah, uh, which was based purely on you know the voyages of um, well, the Persephone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jackson and the Argonauts. P seventy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jackson and the Argonauts. That's right, Argonauts. But and he actually just, says that at the end as know, well. Yes. He actually flags it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it it's good to do things like that. I think you know. I think you've got to just got to do it. And then, of course, I think, was, oh, of course, there's um, the going into the micro world with uh, Invisible Enemy. Mm, yeah. Again, that was, um, that was uh, a kind of blowing a kiss to the incredible journey. Yes, yes. <laughs> or yes. fantastic. Fantastic yeah. journey, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so I can't even remember it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, just feel that you, you're working, trying to fight against something you can't even see. Is that that tiny you know yeah uh it was it was you know a challenge and uh, i think it, then of course the introduction of dear old canine yes well the invisible enemy uh, uh, i have to do full disclosure is my earliest childhood memory and therefore probably the reason i'm here today so <laughs> it's another one of your creations bob and it's me <laughs> um and yes as a supporting character um uh, who's who's even today i mean your book is called canine when you were writing that, did you find memories that you thought had gone sort of coming back? Yes, I did. Um, I found lots and lots of memories um, that, that I'd forgotten about, you know, on the surface of it. But that's, uh, the more and more you write in that kind of vein, you know, sort of remembering, remembering, you remember little tiny facets and things. But I mean, sometimes you just say, well, I don't need that as well. But, uh, you know... Uh, I think mainly about my earlier life I, I remembered more but um, the kind of years of writing I, honestly it was so full of stuff it is very difficult to pick out tiny memories you know mm, little aspects you know that went on I mean uh, we even managed to stage play in that year <laughs> that's incredible down at uh, Exeter at the uh, theatre there and uh, the um, that went. I was three weeks. We had to write that. I mean, I don't know how long we took, but that was filmed eventually and, and was shown on TV as a late night show. You know, um, it was Northcott, uh, Northcott Theatre. But uh, the amount of stuff we did that year is is just staggering. And you, it's interesting because you 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 sort of. I mean, I guess that was a writer's lot in those days. I looked at it with with envy and uh, admiration, looking at the fact that. Yes, there is a sort of run of children's-oriented sci-fi mystery stuff there, but you augment that with your public eyes and targets, quite grown-up, gritty stuff. And then latterly, of course, comedy with... And as a Bristolian man, comedy with a sort of northern idiom to it, with the Wallace and Gromit. So, I mean, are you one of those people who, once you've written a thing, you, you, you crave a different voice to use or has it been a bit more accidental than that the fact that you seem to have been accomplished in so many different areas yeah well i think it's just uh i think 
it's hard to say you're a writer and you get thrown a ball and you say yes of course I can do that and you do you know I mean goodness me I mean the things you mentioned and the, the stuff at the HTV like the Sky mm. uh, King of the Castle, King of the Castle um, yeah. Follow Me and uh, um, don't forget Arthur of the Britons yes and uh, you know another and Into the Labyrinth you know all those things were you know in tune with it um, so we just felt we can do anything and uh you know, of course, then there was the single one-off uh, TV movies with uh, Len Roster's Machine Gunner and Thicker Sleeves, yeah. um, which that was really at the height. I mean, that's what we really loved doing. That was, above all, what we liked doing because it was uh, totally created from nothing mm. and um, people we knew, you know, um, stories that we'd heard all coming in together and put into a sort of really strong storyline. Uh, and um, so, but it's very rare that you've got to, to just write your own stuff, you know. So, you when, mean, so, well, let's talk about those then. So when you did those, how, I mean, d- when somebody like Leonard Rossiter comes on board, was that was that something that was brought to you as an idea? Did you know him? Were you able to? No, no, it was a beautiful surprise. I mean, we were a great admirer of, of Len. Um, and uh, when... Uh, Patrick Drum Gould was head of programmes, uh, sort of rewarding us for doing some a lot of work on uh, a thing called Pretenders, which uh, was a 13 part series about the Monmouth Rebellion. Um, he said, Right, then do, do a thriller set in Bristol. That's all he said. And so we said, Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we sort of uh, uh, met an old mate of ours who was sort of a bit, you know, he'd been in, inside for a bit, and we said, Look, um, we want to do a story about, you know, robbers, a real robber story. And he said, yeah, yeah, well, what do you want to know? He said, well, first of all, how do you blow a safe? Because I have no idea how you blow a safe. He said, I'll put you in touch with somebody. So we went down to the darkest Bedminster in Bristol and we met this strange character who said, I hear you want a safe blown. I said, no, 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 no. All we want to do is ask you how you do it. And uh, he said, oh, all right, and so I got to buy him a few pints and he got going. And he told us exactly how it was done. So then we, we, we had the sort of, you know, the, the kind of nitty-gritty of it all. It was all there. Um, and then the, the stories that we'd heard, several stories, we amalgamated them into one story. And um, it was about a, a safe where they, they'd blown it and it didn't open properly. And, uh, but they found they'd, they'd done the wrong safe. There were two safes. So they take the one to save out on a sack truck, and then do it, blow it up somewhere else. But there was there's all sorts of personal stories going on behind everything. I mean, um, Leonard. When we found Leonard was playing the part, we were absolutely thrilled. I mean, he was a top rung actor, you know, and there he was, and he loved it. He really did. I mean, he loved. He let, we took him to meet this villain down in Edmonton, and he was absolutely thrilled. <laughs> he really that's right up his street. That was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And how how have you found the different? Because you know you've you've written so much, but you've also and you, we've alluded to it. You've you've script edited and you've produced. How comfortable are you with the different hats on? Because they're obviously very different. Well, they're different uh, in name, but in fact, you're really working on the same thing, aren't you? I mean, you you're trying to get the best out of uh, of a drama, whether it be producing, whether it be uh, editing or writing it. You you just want to, to see it at its best. Uh, and you know you don't take your own just your own values with it you sort of ask other people about it you know you do all sorts of things so 
to make sure that everything's you know mainly in especially in things like series that uh, you know that, that they all match up together you don't get some oddball in the middle of it you know mm. well of course you work with four on doctor you work with four very different scripted as terrence yeah. dicks um Bob uh, Holmes. But Robert Holmes, Anthony Reid and Anthony Douglas Reed Adams. And Douglas Adams, yes. So how would, you, how would you compare those experiences? Oh, um, Bob Holmes was really good. I really, really enjoyed working with him. And, you know, um, we, we, we formed a friendship, really. Uh, um, I'd worked with Anthony on several things separately from that at Bristol. Mm. And um, we got on well. Uh, Terence, of course, was, was Terence and, you know, uh, a good good mate, but uh, Mr. Adams was something else. I mean, it was just me <laughs> with him. Uh, yes. In fact, as a script editor, he was great at taking you to lunch <laughs> and having long, long, wandering conversations which went on well into the second bottle of wine. <laughs> well, a night, nightmare of Eden was um, sort of lived up to its name in terms, not in terms of your contribution, but in terms of the the production. They had a lot of hardship. Had you had you sort of kissed goodbye to it at that point? Were you at arm's length from that? Uh, well, I was next door. I was working on Shoe Street at the time, uh, in the next in the same building next door, mm-hmm. and so I, I had good contact with them all. And uh, I remember asking them if they if they wanted a cheap <laughs> a cheap show because I mean obviously I was looking for something. I said I got this idea about using this sort of you know uh, this machine that sort of brings things to you, and so you just need the one set. You don't have to build a huge set outside or anything like that. And but it got all got changed, no everything, you know. But I thought the the ships crashing together was brilliant. I thought the, the special effects on that were really good. Mm. I didn't like the German accent much on the on the on the bad guy. On the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a bad guy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but again, it was it was it was nicely done. Uh, yeah, but except the monsters, because the monsters were a they were awful, and b you saw them in broad daylight. So, I mean, if you've just seen the faces, you know, in the darkness, just mm. just a little, you know, something. But, I mean, you can't, I mean, what can I do? I mean, it's all finished by the time you see it, you know. It's another marvellously fertile idea, another great science fiction idea of how do you smuggle drugs? Well, because the drugs is only the thing once it's decomposed. That's, right. That's such a great idea. Thank uh, you. <laughs> and, uh, but drugs is obviously something not touched. Yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, a bit, they were wondering, yeah. uh, you know, really wondering whether to really do it. But... Um, yeah, that they do. Well, and talking of drugs, it reminds me that the famous um, Katie Manning as a drug addict in Target yes. episode is actually one yeah, of yours. She played a blinder in that. It was wonderful. Yes. And that, that was, was directed by Douglas Camfield, who Douglas never Camfield. did one of your who's. He didn't, indeed. Um, uh, I worked with him on Shoestring, I think, as well, though, as an editor, rather than... Um, but uh, that was Target, wasn't it? Yeah, Target, yeah. yeah. Target. Big Elephant. Yeah. Yes, the second episode. I like doing the second episode because first one you've got to do all the introductions. <laughs> the second one you can really go. Yeah. Again, that was a story we'd heard from somebody. It worked on the docks, you know. Um, it built up from there. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a... It would have been marvellous on, standing on its own as a... I mean, and as I say, Katie was fantastic. Really... And do you do you revisit some some of this? It's interesting because um, I was thinking about King of the Castle, and I remember seeing it when I was young, and I haven't seen it since. 
And part of me goes, oh, I should see it. And part of me goes, I should just remember it as, as it was. was. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and if it's your baby, that must be, a, that must be quite a dilemma. Now, now with the advent of home video and all your stuff being out there, how, how is it re-watching it at all? Uh, it? I, well, I, I had to re-watch Sky to write it because I didn't have the script, um, any script at all of that. And I had to watch it, you know, bit by bit, wind back and then go it forward. And so, yes, yeah, the only really? way I could do it. Oh, that's my the only goodness. Way I, could do it. I couldn't do it from memory. Um, and um, I, I thought, you know, I thought it was rather good. <laughs> I was surprised. I thought, now, this is going to be really corny. It's going to be, you know, but it wasn't. It was all right. It was um, something uh, we were proud of, you know. And King of the Castle, we, that was, you know, for us, that was the height of, of our our work on children's television and HTV. I mean, it, it got nominated for a BAFTA, of course, mm-hmm. which is wonderful accolade. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was deadly serious about a kid, you know, and about a, a kid who's an outcast, or a misfit rather than an outcast. And, uh, you know, we thought, well, why not write about that? Rather, rather than the sort of, you know, a sort of nice kid who's a bit naughty now and again, or something like that. This is a real dilemma for a, for a teenage kid, you know. So we we put it, we piled it on. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what was remarkable, I think, about a lot of the children's, in big inverted commas, drama of that time, yeah. is that it may have children protagonists and obviously no gratuitous sort of nudity or swearing, but actually the subject matters that you yeah. gave us all at sort of tea time were pretty... It was pretty, pretty airy. Yeah. <laughs> And that's the way to do it. I'm assuming that that that's the way to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, for me, I, they say, well, some questions at meetings, they say, well, how do you find the difference between writing for children and adults? There's no difference. There's no difference. Uh, you get a good story. I mean, it's got to have children in. Okay, so you put children in. But, I mean, you know, the way you treat them in that situation is, you know, you've got to think about it. Um, you can't just sort of make it nicey-nicey or anything like that. You've got to make a good yarn, a good yarn and something that means something, I think. Um, uh, it's got a bit of a deeper meaning to it, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's odd that how things cross over sometimes. I mean, uh, I remember uh, on uh, A Close Shave, mm. um, I remembered a thing we did for Hunter's Walk, which is about... Um, about cattle, um, what do you call it? Smug, no, um, Rustle, rustling. Cattle rustling. rustling. Yeah. I thought, hey, well, that'd be a good idea. So I sort of thought of that and remembered it and then put it to Nick and we went through and we came up with this idea about Sean and all that sort of stuff from, from an idea from a, from a, a sort of <laughs> middle-range police series. <laughs> <laughs> no idea is wasted. No, no, absolutely uh, not. And that brings us, of course, very neatly to Wallace and Gromit, um, to icons, Oscar-winning icons of um, British cinema, much-loved national treasures, um, and you're a key part of that. Yes, I am. That's good. <laughs> yes, I mean, and, 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 but and but it can't have been purely geography then. So how did you how did you become involved in Nick Park and what well, what is it that you bring to 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 uh, to those and in, in terms of you know where does the writing fit in with with as we see them visually and what's the crossover and yeah well it's it's um it's it's a question people always ask and and uh, i still haven't really got a pure answer you could say it started in 1968 when dave and i were doing extra work uh, i did some work as an extra for a, a, a bbc director who 
lo and behold, in 1991, or whenever it was, 1994, I think it was, he was head of um, animation at BBC Two. And he knew me very well, and he knew what I'd done. And I'd met the Ardmans, and they just started up. And uh, when I was at HTV, I tried so hard to get their stuff on there, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, we finally did a little tiny bit in into the labyrinth, but it was just not really worth showing. It was so short. Um, but anyway, we became we became friends and everything. And uh, uh, then when I got back from, we made this awful film in Czechoslovakia. I got back from there. That's kind of nadir of my whole career. Um, and uh, I was sort of sitting very miserably in my house, and uh, the phone rang, and it was Dave Spoxton who said, uh, you know, uh, could you come down and see us, you know, and we're talking about doing something. And they introduced me to their new partner then, as he was, was Nick. And they said, well, we want to do, I mean, they'd already done the electricity stuff and everything. Um, and they said, uh, you know, we'd like to do something based on Wallace and Gromit. And they said, well, it's fine by me. I said, but, you know, if you're going to write as a, as a sort of partnership, you, you've got to, you know, we've got to get on and so they put us in a room and uh, we chatted about things and discussed all what, what our interests were and I mean you know we both love the Beano we both love British black and white movie uh, comedies of the 50s and 60s uh, we we've things we thought were hilarious we we both thought was hilarious um, and as far as Nick was concerned I suppose he sort of said okay then fine so then sat down to do uh, the wrong trousers um, what that the contribution that Nick made uh, at the very beginning was a mass of drawings, which is fantastic. You work from a, a, a mass of drawings rather than lot scripted stuff. And and uh, we just sat down for days looking at drawings, saying, "Oh, we have that, about that, you know, um, that'd be nice. We can make that into da 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 da, and so on." And so gradually built up this this rather weird story, um, the wrong trousers, in which this kind of crass old older man <laughs> is just sort of you know, wonderfully badly behaved. <laughs> and uh, got this marvellous dog that does all these wonderful things. And, uh, the, I mean, the success of those has been extraordinary. Um, so when did you get an inkling that this was going to be quite a long uh, association for you? Well, uh, I suppose when I was fingering the first Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, about well, six months later, we were asked to do another one. Um, and so we got to work on... This time, we spent a lot more time thinking about it. I mean, the wrong trousers we did quite quickly. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, the, the, only, <laughs> the only difference between uh, doing that and a normal thing is that Nick was, was never available. I mean, he was always working on something at Hardman. So he could sort of say, I can do half an hour that day, I can do half a day then, maybe a whole day, so and so. So, you know, every now and again we'd work on it. But with, with uh, I think the cheap one, with that one, we spent much more time sitting down watching movies, talking about it and, you know, really getting into it. Uh, round, close shave, close a shave. Close shave. Close shave. And then afterwards, um, uh, I went to America to work for maybe two years, I think. Uh, I was, became a New Yorker <laughs> and uh, when I got back from there they, they started talking about a movie and uh, then the movie took 
four and a half years, I think. <gasps> wow. Which is, for me, is unbelievable. Yeah. So I sort of um, was rested after three years, and I came back at the very end. Uh, and uh, after doing all that, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, we pretty well ended up with the first script. Wow, really? <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't the first script, but uh, I mean, you know, it was as near as damn it, you know. Yeah. Okay, but, what, uh, but you're happy with the result? Yes, yes, I thought the film's great. Yeah, I think yeah, the film's yeah. great. Yeah, it's, um, you know, from the first ideas of the... Um, the, the gardening idea, where, you know, we started off with the gardening idea. In fact, I think it was called The Great Vegetable Plot to begin with. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it finally uh, got more and more weird, which is great. And um, ended up with uh, the the, the um, were-rabbit idea. We we watched God knows how many were-rabbit films, uh, old black and white ones, you know, that sort of stuff. And... Uh, got the feeling of the character mm. and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and of course, with Wallace playing the part, it's him, it's him again being so, so dumb. <laughs> it was great. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll round up very shortly. I, I, but we can't not um, mention K-9's sort of more recent escapades because he was in this curious position of being sort of, even if he wasn't there, sort of a present concerning Doctor Who and the Sarah yeah. Jane adventures, even when he was in a space cupboard. Yeah. Um, but he had this concurrent existence with your own series um, in, Australia. in Australia with a new design. So how how easy was that to juggle in terms of him being allowed in Doctor Who or you wanting him to be a Doctor Who and Sarah Jane and wanting him to have his own life and different channels and all that? Because all that sort of stuff must be a bit of a quagmire. Yeah, well, it? it's very odd because uh, we were... Asking the BBC if we could use the regenerated canine, you know, and they were saying, then suddenly um, uh, they wanted to use the old canine again in school reunion. Uh, so we we met with um, what's his name Russell Russell T. Davis, T. Davis. Yeah. Uh, Russell T. Davis, and he said, you know, um, would that be all right? If, we said be fine. He said we'd like to use it in Sarah Jane as well. And I said that's that's fine because we thought Paul Times and I who did the new one um, we thought well the the more publicity he gets bringing him up into public eye again the better so that the the Australian series can you know just ride off that uh, which worked very well actually um, and the thing is that uh, the Australian series uh, uh, was one of those things which it took ages I took nine years to set up. Oh, nine years. Goodness. Yeah, and then suddenly it all went like falling, falling downstairs. That's quite what happens to me. We were suddenly in to, uh, to uh, doing 26 episodes, you know, ba-boom. And uh, we were living in Australia. And, uh, you know, the first... There was a few sort of awkward moments. The first scripts were a bit difficult. Um, and uh, uh, the directors did what they could. Uh, with, I think, some of the first ones are very good, but but as it went on, they got better and better and better and better. And the last twelve, out of the no, sorry, after, uh, yes, the last twelve were were uh, of a different order. Which, uh, again, that in fact they were just how we wanted it. You know, that seems to be the madness with making anything. As you say, you have to be very dogged to get it there. Yeah, and then once it's there. 
it seems unnecessarily why, why why do you think that 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 is the way that television seems to be done or anything seems to be done nowadays what's happening? well co-productions are particularly difficult because nobody wants to sort of pull the wagon as it were you know uh, they all say well you pull it first and I'll pull some you know there's always this kind of um, you know well hang on a minute maybe they'll do this um lots of terrible disappointments happened in, in the finance structure of that and uh, eventually it got made but uh, you know it was it was never happy production um, <coughs> put it that way <laughs> well and you're saying that you still got stories that you want to tell. What are the stories that you still want to tell? You still you still said you're still banging it out there and wanting to do it. What 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 stories if you could if you could uh, get them on? Is it is it most is it television that you want to do? No, it's movies really. Movies. I mean um I read a book um not long ago which um I thought was a perfect idea for a movie, which is um a Second World War uh, love story set in Belgium and uh it concerns the children of the uh, royal, uh, the Graves Commission, the Royal Graves Commission, that stayed there after the First World War and married into the local population and now had children who were just coming up to 14, 15 years old when the Second World War started. Some of them go back to England, but, uh, you know, so there's a, a beautiful situation where some of the young boys joined the resistance and, and helped allied and escape that sort of thing and um, <clears throat> but there's this complication of, of what happened to the Germans as well you know for instance uh, the, the point of the story is that uh, the main character boy who was very young but very keen to do something against the Germans joins the resistance and his mother has to take in the, the she runs a small cafe she has to take in the commanding officer of the German forces <laughs> and they become lovers ah yeah, that's great that's <laughs> great and and are you so have, what what do you do? do you do you do 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 an idea and do a breakdown or do you just I've like done to a go straight page into on that right. one which encompasses the whole story um and uh you know um, i my agent sent it around but i've had no real real um strong answers yet but uh i mean i'll keep going at it i mean it it's no point in writing a script because that you know they won't read it. <laughs> so if you, if you can do a page and then you can get somebody interested and in saying, "Oh, I'd like to see that," then I probably that you might get a you know somebody to look at it. Well, somebody that's been you know yeah. working consistently and in high quality stuff for so many years. I mean, do you? How do you feel about the way the industry is now? Do you have hope for the future, or have we been through a past a golden age? We have passed the golden age, but I mean it's bound to all ages pass, and uh, you know I'm looking forward to see as far as I can look forward to uh, seeing how it evolves because it's all going to be quite different. I mean nowadays, I mean think of me my my little box brownie making a film, and now you just got the thing in your hand there. You yeah. could do a movie with that. Yeah, yeah. And what do you enjoy then? What what what's that's made now? tickles your fancy that, that you get entertainment from or do you prefer do you prefer the old black and whites and the things well, like that well I mean amazingly I've, I've turned to these you know fantastic TV things like Breaking Bad 
and I'm absolutely amazed at the standard of acting, standard of direction, and you know, it's superb. You know, and some some of the movies that I've seen recently. I mean, of course, we have the the BAFTA ones come in every year, so I get a good look at most of them, and some superb films have come through, you know, but they don't don't get win they don't win anything, but so they're usually very very good. Um, but uh, you know, I I just um, I just like to see good drama. I mean, that's that's about it. And don't forget my uh, movie, Canine Movie, is in in production, not in production, but it's it's in the process of production. We're looking for director and lead actor at the moment. And will that be? That'll be um, co-production UK and Australia, maybe Canada. And uh, so, so you have the story map. You know, you know what you want I've to do. It. You've I've done the whole shebang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and let's also not forget that he did steal your trousers, and you've. So the one of the reasons we've not gone into great detail with Doctor Who here is because um, you've talked about it a lot, and also you have a you have a book. That, yes, uh, we, yes. We'd, from Phantom Films. That's right. Um, Canine stole my trousers. Yes. And was that was that a, was that a fun process to go to go back and round? Yes, it was. Um, you know, it uh, it took me a pleasantly long time. I think I took something like nine months to write it, uh, which I put everything else away and just concentrated on that. And um, you know, I was you know quite pleased with it really. <laughs> Yes, well, so you should be, and not just with that, but with all the entertainment you've given us now. So uh, very grateful for your time today. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, to, Bob, to nominate your charity as you have not been paid, I have not been paid, and listeners, as well you know, you have not paid to listen. So if you could uh, put your money in your hands for Bob's charity, which is... Uh, the Down Syndrome Society. The Down Syndrome Society. I will do a link at the end where they can go onto the website right. and donate. And so the final question is this podcast was assembled initially to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who, a little bit beyond that now, but what is your message to the Doctor Who fans who are listening? Keep buying. (laughs) Bob Baker, thank you very much. That was great. Thanks for that. My thanks to Bob. His charity is the Down Syndrome Society, the National Down Syndrome Society, which is www.ndas.org, which is uh, the Down Syndrome Society. Uh, If you could give, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, Another Who's Round next time. Uh, Thanks to Phantom Films, um, who've uh, helped me make contact with and recommended me to a number of people, including Bob, which was why that interview happened. So thanks to Dexter and Paul. Um, And uh, I hope that you will tune in to the next edition of this silly podcast. Ta-ta! Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Short Trips, O. Tenenbaum. The inside of the cottage was, to be polite, cosy. It seemed to be just one room with a set of stairs leading upwards in the corner. A fire flickered in the grate, but it looked undernourished and on the verge of extinguishing. There was a shabby armchair, a table. That was pretty much it. Offsetting this shabby decor was a splendid Christmas tree in front of one of the windows. It had been gaily decorated with coloured string and fruit and shiny baubles and cinnamon sticks. Candles were attached to several branches, although they were unlit. And the smell, it was even more captivating than in the forest. 
The combinations of pine and orange and cinnamon overwhelmed me with memories of my own childhood Christmases, even though we never had real pine trees, snow, cinnamon or oranges, or, if I'm honest, any real idea of what we were actually celebrating. I recall asking my mother what Christmas was for, and she just shrugged and said, Any excuse for a party? When pressed, she thought it was something to do with the birth of God's sons, Eric and Ernie. Big finish. We love stories.